turning point in realization of the importance was uh, when several years ago I was visiting a colleague in uh, Germany. Uh, we had a meeting, five of us, in a room which uh, I would have said looking around was very well ventilated. That's Lydia Maraska, an expert in the field of atmospheric science. They had something which I, I haven't seen before, namely a, a display on the wall, which was a sensor measuring CO2. And then to my surprise, it kept going up and almost reached 1000 ppm. And I would have never thought that with only five of us in this room, with this ventilation, this would be such a problem. Lydia joins us from the School of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at Queensland University of Technology. Today, Lydia explains what we can learn from the history of pandemics, strategies for reducing risks in indoor spaces, and the economic and social costs of not taking action. I'm Rasha Hassanin, and you're listening to Healthy Spaces with Trained Technologies, a series of conversations that explores the world of indoor environmental quality from the inside out. Lydia is a nuclear physicist by training with a focus on environmental applications. Her work on natural radioactivity led her to specialize in the fields of air pollution and airborne viruses, all under the umbrella of atmospheric science. Lydia's tackled pandemics and epidemics before, so when the reality of COVID-19 hit, she naturally formed her guidance through the lens of her previous experiences. My involvement with this field, which is uh, airborne viruses and epidemics, started during SARS-1. I was invited then to join a team in the uh, in Hong Kong to resolve the story of what was happening uh, in relation to an outbreak in Amoy Gardens. But then I started looking into this whole field and realized how little it was known from my area, which is from atmospheric physics, physics of the virus uh, latent particles in the air. And then I realized how extremely important it was. So this led me to start uh, working, researching in this field and edit this area of research into the International Laboratory of Air Quality of Health. Uh, we've done quite fundamental work uh, in this field and what we wanted to do is to convince the world, if I can use this big uh, word, that something really needs to be done. It's not just about the SARS pandemic, which by that stage was gone and forgotten, but about every day um, colds, flus uh, and respiratory infections of which so many of us suffer so many times a year. But, uh, well, interestingly, uh, no one wanted to hear about this. This is just taken like as a matter of fact, we get these infections. So when this pandemic started, and I've, I and we've heard the same rhetorics that, well, don't worry about anything in the air. That's why we really thought something must be done now. So what is different about the current pandemic? Now, I know right at the beginning, it seemed like it was going to go the same way as SARS, and there was a lot of conversation around droplets versus aerosols, how it was really transmitted. But it's been going on for almost a year now, at least here, a little bit longer in Asia. What's different about this current pandemic? Well, what's different? It's a different virus. So this, there's no doubt that this, this is the main difference. And 
SARS-1 was as infectious as SARS-2, we would have been in a much worse situation because SARS was much more lethal. But because uh, it spreads uh, much easier than uh, SARS-1, therefore it just spreads. And since not much has been done or was done and for a long time, so therefore the country is gradually a country under a country and the region after region allowed it to spread. And in controlling uh, pollution, whatever that pollution is, the main point always is source control. So when the first case, first outbreaks, control it then, it's much easier. If you let it spread or if you let pollution into the air, then preventing exposure is much more difficult. And what the world allowed to do to spread it. Maybe you can tell us some good news. Who's doing a good job controlling or fighting the current pandemic, in your opinion? Where in the world can we look to someone who's maybe been doing a good, a better job? Perhaps one angle is looking uh, into what's happening or what's been happening in Australia and New Zealand. We had significantly fewer cases in Brisbane, the Queensland, where I am, I would say that we basically hear about these things, but uh, over the course of the past months, we had very little lockdown, very few cases, and life is basically normal here. At the beginning, in March, we were complaining, I was among the scientists complaining that the government wasn't quick enough to put um, uh, mitigation measures, and that mitigation measures would have been in particular controlling the arrivals people from cruise ships would have probably prevented uh, the spread uh, altogether in Australia. So we were, we were complaining about this, but eventually when the government started uh, putting mitigation measures uh, in place, they were very efficient. Of course, ventilation was not one of them because that's something which wasn't recognized. What was even more important and uh, comparing to what's happening in other uh, places in the world is that people obeyed what the government put in place. In fact, in Brisbane, people started putting mitigation measures or doing things before the government actions in terms of isolation, keeping away from each other and so on. And this helps protecting the country, protecting the state and getting back to normal. In terms of, however, uh, mitigating airborne, there haven't been many places uh, where this was done efficiently and this slowness of recognition of this has been extremely frustrating. We are basically at the point that it is being recognized, but still often not fully said, yes, it's airborne. This is one of the most important, if not the most important mode of um, transmission in public places. But here the star performance, in my view, is Germany where this has been recognized quite some time ago and about two weeks or so uh, new uh, regulations were introduced in Germany, grants uh, of altogether, I think the country um, uh, supports uh, 500 million euros towards mitigation measures of ventilation, improving ventilation in public places. This is progressive I've seen and that's what I'm hoping the rest of the world would follow. So regardless, obviously, a lot of times we can look to the past and say, you know, we we should have done a better job. What other mitigation strategies are going to be important moving forward? We are talking about building um, uh, mitigation measures, building engineering, ventilation. 
The problem, however, is that uh, if the buildings are not set to uh, introduce these measures, such measures introduced ad hoc may not even be possible if ventilation cannot be increased, if natural ventilation cannot be provided, if the flow direction cannot be adequately controlled. This cannot be done during pandemic. And the biggest importance and lessons from the pandemic is now that we need to rethink how we design buildings so the buildings are prepared for um, controlling the pandemic. But if I go back to what was happening in Australia just before the pandemic, the issue of bushfires, I'm sure the whole world heard about the bushfires and that was experience such as never before in Australia. So I was then interviewed by numerous journalists and the question was what to do, how to protect people. So the recommendation was close up the buildings, um, recirculate the air, stay inside. Now three or four months passed and the same journalist asked me what to do in relation to the pandemic. And the recommendation is 180 degrees opposite. Open up the buildings, don't recirculate and so on. And again, the buildings are not prepared for moving from one to another. It is not that uh, technologically this can be done. It can be done. It costs more to equip buildings in this flexibility to do this. But technologically it's possible. We need to rethink the whole system, how we deal with this whole issue. The buildings, uh, when they are constructed uh, by developers, and then sold to those who will operate them, they are not prepared for what they would be used for. Ventilation or other uh, building measures have to be set for the purpose in which the building will be occupied. And that's not the case. So this has to be completely resought by the, by the whole community. And the concept that the, whoever will own the building buys the building and looks into the uh, well, the price of the investment, how much the, the building costs, if we could put it in. Cheaper it is, the better. But the costs over time, uh, because of all these issues, all these risks, people sick, uh, people not coming to work, are by far higher than potentially the, the, that initial cost at the beginning. Connecting these links between uh, who, op who operates and the costs and, and how it operates. This is something which we must rethink. And this is most difficult. It's not the technology, it's just the thinking how we build. Lydia's advice expresses a need for clear and concise action, a reimagining and flexible adaptation of our buildings and an ability to see the bigger picture, particularly when it comes to costs. But Lydia's already been down this road. Recently, she's been called upon internationally to give recommendations about the spread of airborne viruses. And the advice she's giving now is the same advice she gave 15 years ago. During uh, many of the presentations I've been giving recently, I've been using three slides, which I used in 2005 when I was invited to give a keynote presentation at the Indorea uh, 2005 conference in, in Beijing. Droplet fate in the air, can we prevent the spread of infection? This could be, and I'm stressing, this could be the, exactly the same title as of the presentations now. 
And I'm using three slides, which were the conclusions then. The first was outlining the frequency of respiratory infections, how many times a year children are sick, adults are sick, and how prevalent these infections are within the community. We could probably slightly update the numbers uh, and in different countries it's different, but the issue is exactly the same. The second slide I'm putting is the economic cost of this. For this, I'm actually using the uh, US example because I had the data from the US. And we are talking about billions of dollars. If only a fraction of, let's say, influenza cases were uh, prevented, how much it would um, save? And again, we are talking about huge amount of money. And the last slide, I mean, is conclusion, what we should do in terms of um, building science. If we use the science we, we have, in terms of um, building engineering measures, this would be a good start. But it's not all what we can do. We need to develop better science to keep uh, to take into account uh, prevention of infection. And we have the science. The um, wells riley equation for um, assessment, risk assessment, were developed in where, 1934. We've done this kind of risk assessment, so this is something which um, has to be used better to develop better guidelines against infection spread. We knew this 15 years ago. We haven't done it. Certainly, there's a lot of science that's available today. What are some of the research elements that you're looking at that you think will help influence our actions moving forward? My major focus right now is to bring together uh, scientists, engineers from all areas related to this field. Interestingly, when uh, working over the past few months in the broad general field, many times I've heard from people from different backgrounds the same statement, oh, th this is not really my field, I'm on the margins of this. So there were virologists saying like this, there were engineers saying like this, there were epidemiologists saying like this, I'm on the margins on this. This is just indication how huge this field is. It will not be resolved by virologists only, by uh, engineers only, by uh, physicists only. We all have to work on this together, considering the complexity of this whole uh, issue including social sciences to bring that recognition how the society should operate. Obviously, this field is very multidisciplinary and therefore requires that level of collaboration. And it's not easy. It's not easy in academia and it's not easy in the business world either. What do you think will change in the next five years or so as a result of research, of technology, and how do you think consumer sentiment will shift as a result of some of the occurrences with the pandemic? I'd say uh, everybody now is much more aware of this problem. It would have been unthinkable before that a family member or a friend from a completely different area asks me how droplets behave in the, uh, in the air. This and I get emails like this uh, on a daily basis, which means that Everybody is interested in this topic, that it gets into the uh, everyday conversation, everyday thinking. Uh, but it, it has to go much, much deeper into this. Because right now, let's say I'm sitting in this building, in this office, and I, if anybody asks me, is ventilation here uh, working properly? I wouldn't be able to answer because there's nothing telling me. I can look at my Fibit and tell how many steps I've done and all the other statistics. But about the building, what the building is doing, no one knows and nothing. 
whatsoever. So if, a, if, if we are in a restaurant, if we are in a public place anywhere, we know nothing about the buildings. So what can we do? It's to be improved. It doesn't need to be improved. So what I'm stressing, what I'm thinking is going to happen and hoping is that there will be much more, if I can call it this, building informatics. This place of the parameters, how the building operates. Uh, concentration, to start concentration of carbon dioxide. Of course, it's a proxy for everything. But still, it tells us something. And the more people look at data like this, initially not perhaps understanding everything, but the more they look like this, the more they realize, well, there's a problem here. I can't fix the problem because I can't do anything about this building, but there's someone who operates this building, and they should think about it. And the more people are aware of what's going on around them in the buildings, the more likely it is that things will improve. Building performance dashboards and active sensing is pegged to be a booming technology over the next five or so years, but we've been measuring the temperature of our buildings for a long time. In fact, the electric thermostat was invented over 150 years ago. Nowadays, we have the ability to measure and analyze so many factors in our indoor environments, like carbon dioxide, humidity, particulate matter. And as Lydia explains, when we start measuring these factors, we may be surprised at the results. Well, for me, kind of a turning point in realization of the importance was um, uh, when several years ago I was visiting a colleague in uh, Germany, in Braunschweig. Uh, we had a meeting, uh, five of us, in a room which uh, I would have said looking around was very well ventilated, uh, high ceiling, open window, there was some kind of mechanical ventilation. Now, I wouldn't have thought about ventilation whatsoever in this situation, if not the fact that they had something which I, I haven't seen before, namely a, a display on the wall, which was a sensor measuring CO2, and not only this, but um, like traffic lights showing what it means. So the meeting was starting, the concentration was what, uh, whatever level was showing green. Uh, since I've never seen it before, so I kept watching this. And then, to my surprise, it kept going up and almost reached 1,000 ppm. And I would have never thought that with only five of us in this room, with this ventilation, this would be such a problem. So this was, to me, really a turning point where we need to see what's happening. I must say that since then I'm carrying my own um, CO2 meters and finding uh, that in many places which I would have thought that they are ventilated properly, they are not. So this is something what we really need to make sure that people see and understand. Completely agree. I have an air quality meter in my room and it's amazing how when I open a window, my air quality goes up, both CO2 and particulates. My air quality gets so much better. And how quickly after I close the window, it degrades because I don't, clearly don't have mechanical ventilation in my house yet. So I will be making a capital purchase in my home to make sure my numbers stay above 95. One aspect of this is that... Um, it's not always that simple, and I thought that in relation to air quality in general, it's in fact quite complex. In relation to CO2, it's very clear what is the source, we are the source. Therefore, open the window, gets the pollutant out. However, if you see in, uh, in your meter uh, increased concentration of PM2.5, 
and not being an expert, what do you do? What is the source? Is it inside or is it outside? Shall I close the window? Shall I open the window? So then I thought that this would be very difficult for, uh, for the users, uh, lay users, to interpret. But then I came to conclusion, and this was more when looking at the, all these like Phoebe devices, where first you don't understand what are they telling you, what is the symbol, what, is, what do you need to do. But very quickly realized that, for example, it increased in PIM 2.5 because, uh, in, in because you've just sprayed something. You see this, so this, the, the source is inside, you know what to do. Well, you smell bushfire outside, it increases, you know where it's coming. So with, in no time at all, you learn how to interpret this. Exactly. I mean, mine measures VOCs as well. And the minute I like flat iron my hair or uh, use deodorant or whatever it is, you can tell how quickly the air quality goes down. So, so hypothetical question. You wake up in the morning and you are the one in charge. What are the first two actions you would take? Oh, well, this is a difficult question. <laughs> <laughs> You're the queen of the world. What actions would you take? All right. So I'm first introducing world guidelines for controlling infection transmission. Putting in a balanced way all the modes of the transmission and explaining everything which needs to be done, how this needs to be uh, controlled. And then every country in the world, since I'm the queen, uh, every country in the world has to follow this. And this then penetrates to the um, uh, regulations of individual countries. This is really the problem, that if there's nothing coming from the top, whatever the top is, don't take these uh, um, uh, actions as important. This, so this is the first step. But the second step is to um, influence that link between the building owners and the building developers. I'm not entirely sure yet how this uh, is to be done, because it's not just regulations. This is much more awareness of the problem. So if the building, future building owner is aware of the problem that uh, it causes if this is not taken into account. But if I can put it this way, I've been thinking, uh, let's say you have a dish in mind to cook. You go to the market and you uh, and the dish includes cabbage. You go to the market, you buy a cabbage, and then you look, this is the cheapest cabbage. And then come back home and then... Okay, you buy, you cook the dish. It's not well that good because you realized for this dish you needed a different cabbage. So it is like we we are buying these buildings like cabbages and then thinking, okay, maybe it's a different cabbage for the this. But this is really how deep it goes. That, that realization that we need different cabbage. It's not as easy to get a different cabbage when you bought a building. So exactly. <laughs> you're kind of stuck with the cabbage you have. So, so there, there you go. To the raw cabbage you bought, you will, in a few hours, you'll know that the taste is not as you expect. Absolutely. So what do you tell your family and friends about the things that they can do now to improve their own spaces? You know, it sounds like you're getting a lot of questions from family and friends these days. I am too, by the way. But what can you do? What can we tell our listeners that they can go do tomorrow to improve the quality of their indoor spaces? I'm glad that you asked this question. But in fact, I've been telling this to my family for years now. 
since I'm really into the, to, in this field and I realize the significance of the control measures. So, first of all, if we had a family gathering and if I was sick, I was putting a mask on. <laughs> now, then I realized very quickly that when uh, the grandkids were born uh, and frequently continuous colds or something like this, how easy it was for me to get something. So then I've learned, okay, I need to keep distance and how to isolate myself from the sick uh, kids. So that, well, isolate physically, but also ventilation. This was uh, often a po point of contention during family meetings, if outside was too hot or too cold, and I forced ventilation. So again, this was, this was the issue. But I was doing this all the time. The same in the um, working space here. If somebody came with a cold, which was socially acceptable, now it stopped being socially acceptable. Right now, global and local leaders have difficult but important decisions to make. And it's crucial that experts like Lydia are able to provide guidance and be part of the conversation. Lydia's passion for improving public health and resiliency is clear, and we're really excited to have her on the Council for Healthy and Efficient Spaces. We're looking forward to working actively together, exploring new standards, and identifying new technology that can help address challenges that have been around us for some time and are shared by all of us. You've been listening to Healthy Spaces with Trade Technologies. I'm Rasha Hassani. Don't forget to hit subscribe to hear new episodes. And join us next time when we'll be speaking to Professor Jim Freihut from the College of Engineering at the Penn State Institutes for Energy and the Environment. We'll talk with Jim about a holistic approach to building science and why indoor air quality requires not just a technical, but a cultural shift. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.